This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9. Good morning. It's 7.05 a.m. on Wednesday, the 22nd of November. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mukhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Philip C. Now, in half an hour, we're going to discuss the state of Taiwanese politics leading up to the presidential elections in January 2024. But as always, we're going to kickstart this morning with a recap on how global markets closed overnight. In the US, not much to be thankful for. The Dow is down 0.2%, S&P 500 down 0.2%, and the Nasdaq down 0.6%. How can you say that when Thanksgiving is just around the corner? Well, it's in the red, right? But Asian markets, unfortunately, it's very interesting development here. The only market in the green is back home, FBM, KLCI up 0.4%. The rest all in the red. The Nikkei was down 0.1%, Hang Seng down 0.3%, Shanghai Composite down 0.01%. And STI Singapore down 0.5%. KLCI zigging where everyone zags as always. Uh, but for some thoughts on what's moving international markets, we have on the line with us Carlos Casanova, Senior Economist with UBP. Carlos, good morning. Let's start off with taking a look at the Fed because the Fed's FOMC minutes for November came out last night. What clues did they offer for a possible pause or increase in US rates when the Fed meets for the final time this year next month? Good morning. So the the Fed, of course, uh, didn't want to completely close the door to potential, um, you know, changes to monetary policy settings in case they 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 need to. Um, but clearly, we are looking at a much more um, dovish landscape here. Um, in fact, many you know analysts in the U.S. now are starting to talk about deflationary pressures in 2024. Um, so I, I think that as a result already of the decision, we saw a big decline in the probability of a December Fed um, hike and with the release of the minutes, um, that seems to have been confirmed. So we are um, not likely going to see um, another hike in December. We are looking at uh, pause and higher rates for longer. Um, but we do think that um, you know there are going to be some changes around uh, potentially you know U.S. dollar not being as strong as this week and as this year, and also the U.S. ten-year yield cooling off slightly from those you know levels of five percent or even exceeding five percent at some point earlier um, in the month, and moving towards a more reasonable range of four point five percent or four to four point five percent, I think is a target. Um, so it is uh, definitely quite quite relevant and will have implications for global markets and for us in Asia as well. Carlos, maybe it's a bit premature to ask this, but what is your view in terms of when the Fed will actually start cutting rate? I see some analysts saying as soon as March 2024, some people say as like uh, June 2024. Well, the markets once again, once again, getting quite excited about this possibility of a rate cut. Mm. Um, our house view is that no sooner than after the second quarter of this year. Um, but of course, if we are pushing a narrative um, of a Goldilocks scenario for the U.S. with no soft landing at all, um, and if you look at the consensus consensus in terms of growth, it is still quite positive for 2024. Then that would not be consistent with such an early rate um, cut. So the, in fact, I think the risks here are that nothing happens at all next year. Well, keeping to the theme of rates, but shifting to China, China kept one of its kept its one and five year lending rates unchanged on Monday. What reasons would have been behind the PBOC's decision to do so? Yeah. Well. Um, 
First of, first of all, it was not a surprise as they had kept the MLF rate unchanged. And uh, so far this cycle, every single rate cut has been preceded by an MLF rate cut. So we kind of knew what was, what was going on. Um, and I think there might be two reasons for that. The first reason is a straightforward. Um, they have less room to deliver monetary policy stimulus um, given high U.S. rates and also a strong U.S. dollar. They, they are quite careful about exacerbating Regulatory pressures that might fuel outflows, um, and the second point is simply that they are um, prioritizing other measures. So we did see a big liquidity injection, which is quite targeted. But also, just a few weeks earlier, they announced a massive fiscal stimulus plan. So I think what we are going to see from China, and in fact many other economies around the world, is a less proactive monetary policy with a more proactive fiscal policy heading into 2024, and hopefully that will help to pick up the slack a little bit. And speaking of stimulus, Beijing is considering injecting 1 trillion yuan of low-cost financing to renovate urban villages and affordable housing projects, in addition to drafting a whitelist of 50 developers that banks will be encouraged to lend to. How effective do you think these measures will be in boosting China's battered property sector? Well, the one trillion is equivalent to around one percent of GDP. So so far, they've announced the one plus one over two years, so about two percent of GDP worth of um, uh, fiscal spending, new fiscal spending over the next two years. It's not sizable enough to, uh, you know, justify double-digit growth in China. That's not going to happen. Mm. Um, but it is enough to offset some of the pressures. Specifically with this project, what you will see is you will see fiscal transfers because um, it's for a shantytown renovation project. So they're calling it um, urban village renovation now. But it's the same thing. It's effectively there are some cities and some provinces where there's some um, urban redevelopment work that needs to happen and they will channel funds to these provinces for that to take place. The contracts will go to companies that perhaps um, have had payments stalled as a result of the issue with the local um, oversupply of housing in some of these places. So it, it, it serves as an injection to sort of alleviate some of the pressures in, in those regions. It effectively puts a floor, prevents a worst case scenario and hopefully helps with sentiment. It doesn't really um, make the economy go from you know 4.5 to 7% growth. And Japan's economy contracted more than expected in quarter three this year to minus 0.5% from 1.2% in the previous quarter. Why did the GDP growth fall so drastically? Yes, this is a, a favorite topic of mine because um, so many of the sort of sell-side analysts are bullish about Japan. Um, and of course, there are reasons for that. But um, when I hear them argue that the economy is recovering. I always laugh a little bit. Um, this clearly, the GDP is not one of the reasons why the Japanese equities are doing well this year. Um, we saw extremely strong growth in the second quarter, but a lot of that was driven by um, a positive net export position because imports were declining so quickly because domestic consumption was so weak amid uh, depreciatory pressures on the yen. And we also saw... Um, you know, in inventories playing a strong role. And now both of those factors are not something that is sustainable or that denotes um, overheating in the domestic economy or strong demand. And so what happened is with those two factors out of the picture in the third quarter, we saw a big deceleration in the quote-unquote in the Chinese economy to something that is more normal for Japan. Um, and so heading into next year, I think we have, this year we have that strong base effect. So we GDP growth is going to be quite high, around 2%. But heading into next year, we're looking at a more moderate picture of around 0.5 to 0.8, um, which is uh, a reasonable range for the Japanese economy. 
What about the the yen, US dollar yen, currently hovering around 148? Do you think the Bank of Japan is comfortable at these levels? It's, it's, you know, it's not going to intervene. Well, actually, it's the MOF that intervenes. <clears throat> they have been intervening. Um, so we have seen the, the, the rate move down from 150. Um, the line in the sand seems to be 150, not even 152 or 153 mm. like last year. It seems to be 150. So I think they are not yet entirely comfortable with the level of the US dollar JPY. Uh, and they are going to continue um, with a very, very cautiously hawkish approach um, to their form of normalization of monetary policy. That in our opinion means that you know yield curve control no longer serves them well in an environment of high cost post inflation, so they have to um, do something about that. But um, negative interest rates, uh, I think, will be here to stay. Um, so we are um, inevitably going to see uh, a little bit more downside on the number before Bank of Japan is in a comfortable position. So we do have a more sanguine um, forecast for the JPY for 2024. All right, Carlos, thanks very much for speaking with us. That was Carlos Casanova, senior economist at UBP, giving us his take on some of the trends that he sees moving markets in the days and weeks ahead, commenting on some of the central bank moves that we're seeing uh, across the US, China and also Japan. I was very uh, interested to his observation on China, where he expects next year to be very heavy on fiscal policy, but lighter on monetary policy. Mm. Japan, 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 what a conundrum. So your GDP isn't great, but your stock market is excellent. And then your yen continues to depreciate. Go figure. Mm. <laughs> so, and what is the threshold, right? 150, 152, 153? 150. I think the basically stock markets rallied on its own because the Japanese companies have been pressuring them to be more, I suppose, give back more to shareholders, be more active actually uh, in terms of corporate governance. So that's another reason. And it actually weekend benefits Japanese equities. Well, speaking of conundrums, let's take a look at what's happening with NVIDIA. You know, So they reported third quarter results that were better than what analysts had expected. Revenue came in at 18.1 billion US dollars, which is 34% higher than the previous quarter and 206% higher than the previous year. So they're doing well. And yet, I think the stock has been languishing in aftermarket trading. Okay, let me give you the perfect analogy. And I'm going back to Asian parenting. Is you come back from home, you come back from school with your report card and you tell your mom, I got nine A's, star, but one A. And your mother is focusing on that one A because what she wanted was 10 A star. So that is NVIDIA. Markets were expecting so much in terms of the AI chip boom. And yes, they beat expectations, but not enough. <laughs> I think it, as an Asian parent, what usually happens is they always focus on the points you didn't achieve. The, yeah, you didn't get the, the 10 errors stars. you make, right? You the just... errors you made. And so, what were the errors that were made, or what were the missed opportunities, perhaps, that Nvidia experienced, right? And perhaps one is China, right? That's one of the biggest challenges that Nvidia is facing with restrictions for chip exports to China and other countries, right? As we all know, China really contributes nearly a quarter of its data center revenue over the past four quarters. So, perhaps it's one blip, right? Although you see these numbers, that's not going to give you 10 A stars like you got shouting when you were very young. <laughs> well, <laughs> of course. Uh, but what does the street expect? I think this stock is one of those names, right, where there's no sales. As far as I know, everybody loves NVIDIA. 
I feel like it is that boom AI stock at the moment, right? It's what everyone is uh, using as the benchmark for the potential of AI. Uh, so yeah, it's one of those uh, stocks that everyone wants to have in their portfolio. Yeah, so currently, if you look at it, right, it's still up something like 240% on the year-to-date business, one of the best performing on the S&P 500. <laughs> 60 buys, guys, three holes, no sales. Like I said, it's a darling. Uh, 648 US dollars and 50 cents. It's now 499 US dollars and 44 cents is actually down $4.65. So this is still the best proxy for anything related to AI, but I think there's, they've got a new competitor and it's Microsoft, especially on the back of Sam, Sam Altman joining Microsoft. Yesterday, Microsoft hit an all-time high on the back of that news. Well, as I would, I'm hearing Joe Quinlan's uh a voice in my head when he says, buy the dips. I don't know if this is the dip that that you know we should buy NVIDIA on. But very quickly, I think, let's squeeze in one more earnings report. And this is coming from Lowe's. Lowe's slashed its full-year sales outlook as customers pull back on fewer DIY projects. The fiscal third quarter sales uh, fell by around 13% on year to $20.5 billion US dollars, while net income came in at $1.7 billion US dollars, or $3.06 per share. Online sales declined by 4% compared Comparable sales decreased by 7.4%. Sales to home professionals rose in the quarter, and these pros accounts for around 25% of its business. This was in contrast with competitor Home Depot as they beat Wall Street's fiscal third quarter earnings and revenue expectations last okay, week. So there was a flurry of consumer-related stocks. So Lowe's didn't do well. Best Buy's also didn't do well. Um, the one that surprised everybody was Dick's Sporting Goods. They mm. actually increased their forecast. So it's a bit of hit and miss, I guess. It depends if you're you're talking about experiences, sports, perhaps people still are willing to spend money. But when it comes to any big ticket item, home improvement, you're like, no, let's no not more home there. renovations. No more electronics for the time being, maybe. Well, we'll have to wait and see. 7.19 in the morning. We're going to head into some messages. We'll come back to cover the top stories in the newspapers and portals this morning. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.